Well, it's good to see everybody. We're in part two of a series called What Makes You Happy? So if you were here last week or you're watching last week, I wanna start with a quick review. And so just kind of think back, think back to what we talked about a week ago. I know it's hard because I wanna ask you a question and I hope someone knows the answer or I will feel like a complete failure and it may force me to re-preach last week's message all over again. Okay, so here's the question and then you just shout out the answer if you remember the answer. Okay, here's the question. The question is, so what makes you happy? No thing, look at that, you got it. Somebody was painting, I feel so good, we'll just move on with the series. That's right, what makes you happy? Last week we started this series and we spent most of the time talking about the fact that happiness is more about a who than a what. That happiness always involves a who or two, says Dr. Seuss, okay? So when you think about happy or the happiest moment in your life or the happiest time in your life, there were some people there, not just some things there because happiness is more about a who than a what. In other words, God. God doesn't want um, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. Is one of those things that we all grow up with. But oftentimes, you know, you maybe heard that growing up in church. But it's you know, and so there's this sort of this dichotomy that there's contrast people create around. You know, God wants you to be happy, but you know, God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. You're kind of looking at me strange. Anybody heard this before growing up? Yeah. In fact, you've probably heard sermons on this. God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be holy. Like maybe, like maybe God's favorite song was, "If you're happy and you know it." Repent, like that was that's God's favorite song because he doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy, right? And so what, we, what we're discovering is that nothing could be further than the truth. That, um, you know, while happy may seem to be the opposite of holy or the opposite of godly, or maybe you can't be a Christian and, and be happy, um, none, of that, none of that's the case. And that's why we're spending several weeks on this. And for some of you, this is a brand new idea because maybe for some of you, this is the reason that you walked away from church or you walked away from God or you walked away from your religion because you just got the feeling, I'm either gonna be like a good Christian or a good whatever you were raised, or I'm gonna be happy. And it seemed like all the happy people weren't the church people, and so you found yourself with this con- in this contrast. And what we're discovering is that that is a false dichotomy. That's a false dichotomy. That you can actually be, not only can you be happy and be a Jesus follower, Jesus says that he knows more about happiness than anyone else, and those of us who believe in God believe that must be the case because God created us, and and you know this about yourself, God created you with the capacity for joy, and God created you with the capacity for happiness, and why would God create such extraordinary capacity and not want you to fulfill it through him? So today, as we move along with this series, we're gonna look at the words of Jesus in his most famous sermon. Um, we, we know it as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount includes what is oftentimes referred to as the B attitudes. They all start with B because they're, we, if you grow up in church, it's blessed, 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 but we say the word blessed, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And in this, in this, this message, essentially, Jesus answers the question, what makes you happy? In other words, if you were to say, Jesus, what do you think makes us happy? Jesus would say, here's what makes you happy. Now, the interesting thing is the word blessed, or if you grew up in church, blessed, you know, blessed, blessed, is a Greek word, makarios, and it actually means fortunate or happy. So this is, this is a message that Jesus gives where he says, this is what happy people do. This is how happy people behave. If you want to be happy, here's what you should do. Here's how you should think. He gives us a description of happy 
people. Now, here's, here's the challenge with the message today. Today is like a lot of Bible verses because there are eight of these blessed are, if you say it the old way, or blessed are, if you say it the new way. Blessed are these people. There's eight blessed categories. And my temptation was to take one each week because they go so extraordinarily deep. But instead of that, I want to hit all eight real quick. But what, here's what I want you to listen for. I want you to listen for the common denominator. Because when we get through these eight things real quick, we're going to step back and ask the question, what do all of those things have in common? And look up here just a second, if you were already losing focus. This is so cool. What, what these things have in common is an extraordinary, brings us to or leads us to an extraordinary, extraordinary insight about happiness that may be the key to you becoming happy because Jesus was so ridiculously smart. In fact, even if you're not a Jesus follower, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a religious person, these words are so extremely rich, it's hard to argue with Jesus' logic. And then at the end, we're gonna step back and say, what do all these things have in common? And the thing that all eight of these things have in common leads us to a brilliant insight about happiness that you will either embrace or you'll spend the rest of your life butting up against. So you might as well embrace it. So I'm gonna read through these verses, make a few comments along the way, then we're gonna step back and say, what was the big picture? What was the main point Jesus was trying to make about happiness? And then we'll wrap up part two of what makes you happy. So here's, here's Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Here's how it begins. Here's the context. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples, and again, in the New Testament, there's three groups of people that follow Jesus. There's the apostles, like the 12 apostles. Then there's disciples. Those are the people that believed in Jesus, followed Jesus, went everywhere he went. And then there was the crowds, you know, hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people who followed Jesus. So Jesus got all three. He's got his apostles, the disciples are coming around, and the crowds are following him. So he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, this is the most famous sermon he preached. He pro- we know that he repeated this content more than once. And what did he choose to preach this most famous sermon about? But happiness, happiness, happiness. Here's what he said. He said, blessed are or blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And right out of the chute, right off the top, Jesus addresses one of the biggest myths as it relates to happiness. And it's essentially this, that rich people are happy people or that perhaps poor people are happy people. And Jesus said, rich people aren't happy and poor people aren't happy. Let me tell you who's happy. The happy people are the people who are poor in spirit. And here's what he meant. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that no matter how much you have or how little you have, you are completely dependent upon God every single minute of every single day. Poor in spirit, to kind of give you, tease out the definition, are people who embrace their daily dependence on God regardless of what they have. The poor in spirit are those that have a little or have a lot or have something in between who wake up every day and say, God, I am no less dependent on you today than I was when I had absolutely nothing. Those who are poor in spirit live every single day as if they are dependent on their heavenly father. Because here's the thing, and some of you have learned this the hard way. Perhaps some of you are on the verge of learning this the hard way. The moment you put, this is what Jesus knew. The moment you put your trust in riches instead of him who richly provides, you are unhappy. 
The moment you transfer your trust from your heavenly father to your riches, and by riches, I mean your opportunities, your education, what you have, what you own, what you've borrowed for, where you live, where you drive, all the stuff that we kind of build our self-esteem around. The moment we transfer our trust from him who richly provides to the riches themselves, we become unhappy, and here's why. Because suddenly it is up to you to control outcomes and you can't control outcomes. You can influence outcomes, but at the end of the day, none of us control outcomes. And the moment that I place my trust in riches instead of him who richly provides, suddenly I take upon myself a responsibility, you take upon yourself a responsibility that is too big for you to carry. This is why you've met unhappy poor people, middle-class people, and rich people. Anyone who is feeling the burden of it is up to me is by definition unhappy. And Jesus says, let me tell you who the happy people are. They're rich, they're in the middle, and they're poor. They're people who are poor in spirit, who recognize I am as dependent upon God for my provision as I have ever been. Because here's the thing, the poor do not attempt to find ultimate satisfaction in things because things are not an option. Poor people do not attempt to find satisfaction in things because things are not an option. And your heavenly father has invited you and invited me in to live with that same idea, that same understanding. That at the end of the day, my confidence is not in stuff. My confidence is in the one who provides the stuff. Years ago, when I was studying the Lord's Prayer, a a prayer that many of us grew up quoting and memorizing as children, um, I put it in my own words, and it's part of my daily devotional life. And part of that prayer is every single day, on my knees, I declare my dependence on God for provision every single day. And I have money in the bank, and I have a good job, and I have a career, you know, and I'm way better off than I thought I'd ever be. But every single day, I declare out loud in my prayer time, God, I declare my absolute dependence on you for all my provision. I do not want to slowly transfer my trust to my ability to make money, save money, or generate income. And Jesus says, you wanna be happy? The happy people are the people who are poor in spirit. They recognize that at the end of the day, they are completely dependent upon their Father in heaven. That's just the first one. I mean, this is so rich. He goes on, he says this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What? Yes, it's blessed are those who mourn. Do you know who mourns? Mourners are people who are emotionally connected. People who recognize and don't hide from or don't run from the fact that there are bad things in the world, there's unjust things in the world, there's randomness in the world. And they're willing to walk into those moments of death and sorrow and grief and stay there and face it full on and embrace the fact that death is actually a part of life. In our culture, this becomes, this is more and more and more unusual. And here's why, because death is so sanitized for most of us. And all of us have had that experience of, of someone we know dying and we know we need to go to the funeral and it's like, what time does it start? And I'm so sorry they died, but I wanna get in, I wanna sit in the back, I want somebody to see that I was there and then I wanna leave and I wanna get back to work and I wanna just kinda shake it off, you know, maybe get a drink on the way back to office. I just, I, I don't wanna think about death, I wanna move on with my life. And Jesus said, if that is your attitude toward death, you will never be happy. Let me just kind of put this in my words. As a pastor, I've seen this so many, many times. This is a little warning for some of you. And this is sort of what Jesus was getting at. Fear of dying will rob you of the joy of living. Fear of dying will rob you of the joy of living. Fear of death will rob you of the joy of life. 
And, and here's what I mean by that. For the person that is not willing to fully embrace the reality that all of our lives are bookended, that they spend so much time and energy trying to avoid and try not to think about the inevitable, ultimately it robs you of your happiness. And Jesus says, let me just give you a clue. Blessed, happy are those who when they are faced with the fact that this life comes to an end, who are willing to face it, feel it, endure it, and be a part of it. He says, you will find contentment and happiness there far more than if you spend your life trying to pretend like it's never going to happen to you. Wow. Isn't this true though? Think about it. When you think about happy people, the people that you know that are really happy, if we scratch beneath the surface, you'll find men and women who really don't seem to be all that concerned about death in the end. They don't dwell on it, but it's not like something that's in front of them all the time. And they've given themselves to the reality that there is more to life than this life. Jesus goes on. He says this. He said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, our response to this word is almost all negative, okay? Because nobody has on your list of when I grow up, I want to be meek, right? And you know, dads, when you think about the, the man that's going to marry your daughter someday, you've never said to your daughter, honey, I really hope you marry a meek man. I really do. I, I'm thinking meek. You're thinking, no, I want him to have a job. I don't know, I don't know about meek. And here's why. Because we, we think of meekness as weakness, but Jesus understood meekness is a powerful, powerful, powerful thing. Here's what meekness is, kind of a wordy definition. Meekness is a proper estimation or valuation of oneself. A proper estimation or value of one's, or evaluation, evaluation of oneself within the broader context of God's creation and love. In other words, a meek person is a person who faces the reality about who they are. Are, that they are part of God's creation, that God is up to something in the world, and they are a part of it, but they are not the center of it. Meek people understand it's not about me. Meek people aren't constantly fighting for more friends and more followers and more fans and more about me. They're not always trying to be the center of attention. They are willing to do what John the Baptist talked about. I love this verse where John the Baptist said, we can only receive what comes to us from heaven. We can only receive what comes to us from heaven. In other words, I'm gonna take advantage of every opportunity that comes my way. I'm gonna do my best with every opportunity that comes my way, but I'm not gonna strive to be something beyond what God has called or enabled me to be. I'm willing to accept God's valuation of me. I'm willing to accept the place where God has placed me. I'm not gonna strive on the inside to go further then perhaps God has called me to go. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is simply acknowledging God's estimation and evaluation of me based on who he created me to be and in the, within the context of God's broader creation. He says, you wanna be happy? Embrace meekness. But he goes on. He says, and blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In other words, blessed are those who are committed to doing the right thing. And we touched on this a little bit last week. And, and again, it's, it's somewhat intuitive, but Jesus reminds us, essentially he's saying this happy, if we use the word happy, happy are those with no guilt, no regret, and a clear conscience. Happy are those with no guilt, no regret, and a clear conscience. Happy are those who are committed to doing the right thing, even when it costs them. 
Happy are those who recognize, as we said last week, that sin separates and sin substitutes and sin breaks down my relationship with myself and sin breaks down my relationship with other people and ultimately sin erodes my relationship with God. And Jesus says, at the end of the day, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are leaning in and asking the tough question, what is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? What is the right thing to do? He said, at the end of the day, you will be happy. But isn't it true? When you think about the people in your life or you think about that season in your life, or perhaps you look at the season you're in right now, that doing the wrong thing does not create happiness? I mean, isn't it true that your greatest regret wasn't when you did the right thing? It's when you did the wrong thing. Isn't it true that your greatest regret was about that time when you knew the difference between right and wrong and you decided to do the wrong thing and you want to go back and redo it? I doubt there's anybody here or listening or watching who says, oh, if I could only go back and redo high school, I would get in more trouble. If only I could go back to my freshman year in college, I would, you know, get in more trouble. Isn't it true that our greatest regrets stem from the fact that we knew the difference between right and wrong and we chose what was wrong? Isn't it true the thing that we drag around that we wish we could erase from our mind and erase from our lives were those decisions that were the wrong decisions? And Jesus says, look, I know it may not be popular. I know it may sound religious, but happy are those who hunger. I love this. Hunger and thirst for righteousness for ultimately they will be filled then he goes on. He's not done. He says this. He says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. What's mercy? He's essentially saying this. I love this. Happy are the relationally generous. Happy are the relationally generous. Happy are those that give people exactly what they don't deserve relationally. Happy are those who aren't seeking revenge. Happy are those who forgive. Happy are those who don't hold grudges. Happy are those who put away bitterness. Happy are those who are not waiting to be paid back from someone in their past. Because you know this. You've never met a happy, bitter person. You've never met a happy person who holds a grudge. You never meet, you've never met a happy person who's waiting to be paid back from some previous relationship. But what you have met are people who've been extraordinarily mistreated. You've met people who've gone through circumstances you wouldn't wish on your enemy. And somehow they've emerged on the other side and they're fine, they're happy. And when you scratch beneath the surface, what you discover is this. These are men and women who understand what it means to be relationally generous. They decided to extend to their father exactly what their father didn't deserve. They decided to extend to that boss exactly what that boss didn't deserve. They extended, they decided to extend to that ex-husband or that ex-wife exactly what that ex-husband or wife didn't deserve. They were relationally generous. And even though they were never paid back, even though they never extracted revenge, even though they never got an apology, even though the person that offended them never owned up fully to what they did, they are happy. And Jesus says, I understand this. Happy, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Isn't that brilliant? I mean, isn't it somewhat intuitive, but isn't it something that we quickly Forget. And then he goes on and he gets to my favorite one. And I think this is my favorite one because I think it's the one that doesn't get enough attention. It's sensitive. Anytime I try to talk about this in church or or one-on-one with somebody, I, I feel like sometimes I cross a line and I offend people. 
And yet, in this next statement, I think it's so big that if Jesus had just come to earth and said this one thing and died for our sins, it's enough for us to go on for a long, long time. Because in this next statement, Jesus essentially baits us in. He says, would you like to see God? Or would you like to see so clearly in life that you would recognize where God is at work in the world? Would you like to be able to recognize God's plan for your life? Would you like to recognize what God wants you to do in tough decisions, whether it has to do with relationships or money or your future or your career? Would you like to see clearly? Would you like to be able to see as clear as anyone can possibly see? Would you like to be able to look at circumstances and invitations and opportunities and see what leads to trouble and what leads you to a place where you will be able to avoid regret? Would you like to have that kind of clarity in life to which all of us would say yes? And Jesus leans into his crowd and he leans into us. And he makes this incredible, incredible statement. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I just think that's one of the most profound things in the entire New Testament, perhaps the entire scriptures. And I'll tell you why. Part of it is because of my experience as a pastor. Because I have talked to countless people who have said, and perhaps all of us to some extent would say this ourselves, people who would look back on their past, a previous relationship, a previous season in life, and they would say, Andy, I just don't know how I allowed myself to get in that. Why didn't I see it coming? How could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so naive? Why didn't I see it's coming. Why didn't I, to use our word, why didn't I have the clarity I needed to stay out, to say no, to get up and leave, to walk away, to just stay away? What, what, what was going on? And, and, and as gently as I know how, I see, you know, Jesus addressed this. Jesus has invited us to purity in a culture that doesn't even use the word except when it talks about water. But other than water, the idea of purity and the idea of moral purity is so, you know, not in vogue. Is so, it's not something anyone talks about. But Jesus says, I just want you to know, the clarity that you need for life is found in purity, moral purity, ethical purity, the decision to purify your mind to look above and beyond, to decide, you know what? I don't have to experience everything in life to understand life. In fact, Jesus will say it's the opposite. If you would like to have clarity about life, if you wanna have clarity about sin, stay away because purity leads to clarity. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they have the greatest chance of identifying and seeing the activity of God. See, for some of you right now, this is a real issue because you're trying to make a decision relationally, morally, ethically. And there's something in you that says, I'm missing out, I'm missing out, I'm missing out, I'm missing out. And Jesus would say to you, no. And if you will purify your mind, and if you will renew your mind, and if you will think my thoughts, the day will come when you will realize you weren't missing out. You'll have the clarity to see that following me leads to happiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And let's face it, in our culture, this is difficult. No one's calling us to this. No one is reminding us of this. And so Jesus drops it in there, just a simple statement that was true then, and it's true 
today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That is a big idea, and he keeps going. He says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Why? Because your heavenly father wants to make peace with you. And when you make peace with other people, you're acting like your father in heaven. So he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, let me just turn it around and ask you this question. Do you know any happy troublemakers? I mean, Gina, when you think about the person that's always stirring it up in the office, always stirring it up in school, always stirring it up in the fraternity or sorority, they're just always making trouble. Do you consider these happy people? Do you know any happy troublemakers, the opposite of a peacemaker? Of course not, because troublemakers are troubled by other people's happiness. Troublemakers are troubled by happy people. They really are. Troublemakers like to target happy people. Because troublemakers want everybody to be unhappy. It's just the nature of, of troublemakers. I, I, uh, years ago, I had the opportunity to, to interview Joyce Myers and her husband, Dave. And in this interview, Joyce talked about the fact that early on in their marriage, she was so extraordinarily unhappy and it drove her crazy because her husband, Dave, was so happy. She said, so I decided... If I'm not happy, he's not going to be happy. And she said, I really, I just tried, did my best to make him unhappy because I was so unhappy. This is what unhappy people do. They become troublemakers. And she said, finally, Dave looked at me one day and said, Joyce, I'm going to be happy whether you're happy or not. And she said, this was a turning point for her in her own thinking, in her own mind, especially as it related to her faith. And Jesus says, look, there's no happiness found in troublemaking. There's happiness found in peacemaker, peacemaking. Here's my way of saying it. Happy are the reconcilers. Happy are the people that are willing to walk into relationships that are broken or breaking and those who make peace. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are the reconcilers. Now, isn't that just true? I mean, when you know, when you think of happy people, aren't they reconcilers rather than troublemakers? How did Jesus know this? How did 2,000 years ago, why was he able to do such an extraordinary job dissecting happiness and inviting us into it? This is why whether you're a Christian or not, whether you take Jesus seriously or not, whether you believe he's the son of God or not, you should read the words of Jesus because Jesus was constantly inviting people who did not believe he was the son of God to follow him anyway. And then he gets to the one that's like, okay, mercy, I got the, you know, you blessed are the merciful, I can kind of go with and the pure in heart, not sure I'm gonna do that, but it kind of makes sense because I look back at my life and I should have seen it coming and now I can see it and I wonder why I, I get that. But this next one is where we both put both feet on the brake. It's like, I, I just can't go there with Jesus. But I'm telling you, this may be the most brilliant one of all. Here's what Jesus said to wrap it up. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, <laughs> to which we say, okay, see this word and happiness, they do not go together. This word and blessed don't go together. I, you know, if, some, if I'm being persecuted, if I lost my job, you know, for doing the right thing, or I, you know, failed a test because everybody else had the, the notes and I didn't get the notes and I didn't want to cheat and I failed the test and then my GPA goes down. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no I'm blessed based on being per persecuted. But here's what Jesus was getting at and here's what becomes clear throughout the entire New Testament and here's what we will all discover eventually in life. So let me go ahead and say it for you in case you haven't gotten there yet and it's simply this. You are going to suffer in this life for doing right or for doing wrong. In this life, in your life, you are going to suffer for either doing the right thing or you're gonna suffer for doing the wrong thing. 
But you can, be ha- you can only be happy on one side of that equation. You can't be happy on the other. You can, be happy for, you can be happy when you're persecuted for doing the right thing because at the end of the day, you have peace with you and you have peace with God. But if you suffer for doing the wrong thing, you don't have peace with you and you don't have peace with God. And Jesus draws us into this broader context of saying, to just think about it. In your life, you are going to be persecuted. You are going to be mistreated. Do you wanna be mistreated for doing the right thing? Or do you want to be mistreated for doing the wrong thing? Blessed are those, happy are those, who when it comes down to it, choose to pursue righteousness even when it costs them. Because you can be happy doing the right thing and facing the consequences. You cannot be happy doing the wrong thing and ultimately facing the consequences for a decision you should have never made. It's just absolutely Brilliant. Because when you're persecuted, when you're mistreated, when there is a consequence for doing the right thing, you can maintain your peace with God and you can maintain your peace with you. Isn't that, it's like, yeah, I mean, why didn't I see that? You know, I've read that a thousand times. Maybe you learned a song. You know, maybe you've heard somebody teach through this. Jesus says, this is, this is how you live a blessed life. This is what it means to be happy. These are the activities. These are the mindset. This is how you achieve happiness. But here's the question, as I said at the beginning. The question for us today, because there's so much detail, there's so much more we can say. What's the common denominator? In other words, when Jesus finishes this part of the message because he moves on to some other stuff, what what is the takeaway from all that detail, all those applications and all those words? And the takeaway The big aha moment, the thing that perhaps could be life-changing for some of you as you struggle with this season of your life is that through all of these words, Jesus brings us to this unavoidable conclusion that happiness, happiness is an outcome. Happiness is a result. Happiness is about something now that leads to something later. Happiness is more about ultimate than immediate. That happiness is not immediately accessible. In other words, that means you can't hear a song, you can't read a book, you can't hear, even hear a message like this and walk out and say, you know what? I was unhappy at 1230, but at 1235, I'm happy. I'm happy now. I did it. I heard that thing. I read that thing. I prayed that prayer. I went to the deal. I went to the conference. I took notes. He says, no, you need to understand. It's, happiness is better than that. It's richer than that. It's deeper than that. Happiness is an outcome. Happiness is more Farmer than programmer. You know what I mean? In other words, you sow and you reap your way to happy. Just as some of you, if you were honest, would say, and I have sown and reaped my way into unhappiness. The place that you are, the place you wish you could avoid, the place that you wish you never arrived, you sowed your way there. And Jesus says, I have some great news. You can sow your way out and you can sow your way to a blessed life. You can decide now to embrace meekness. You can decide now to be relationally generous and to become a merciful person. You can decide now that from now on, I'm not gonna be a divider. I'm going to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. You can decide by God's grace from now on, even if it costs me, I wanna be a person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. I want to commit to doing the right thing. I'm going to become a reconciler, not a divider. And by God's grace, 
Even if it means I gotta get new roommates, even if it means I need to move, even if it means I need to cancel some subscriptions, I am going to pursue purity because I want to see God. Happiness is an outcome. It's a result. You sow and you reap your way there. This is why, this is why at the end of this incredible sermon, his most famous sermon, at the end of the sermon, Jesus gives us a little parable. In fact, if you grew up in church, you've heard this so many times before. In fact, if you grew up in the kind of church I did, you know a song about it. We won't break into song. At the end of this message, okay, because Jesus has covered so many things, so many different areas of life, even beyond what we've talked about. At the very end of the message, here's how he concludes this powerful, powerful teaching. He says this, he says, therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine, and they all heard, and puts them into practice. Not goes, oh, that was really good. I wrote that down. Not says, ah, my mother, my mom really needs to hear this. Not who says, oh, that was convicting, or says, oh, I've never heard anything like that before. He says, anybody who hears what I just said and doesn't, not just agrees with it, but puts it into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and this took some time. A brand new house built by a builder is not immediately accessible. It takes a while. And Jesus says, the person who hears what I just said and decides from this day forward, from this point on, he says, is like a person that began the process of building a house on solid rock. Nothing changed immediately, but something changed eventually. But then he says this, remember the flip side? But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, even if you agreed, even if you thought it was interesting, even if you knew somebody else, somebody else who needed to hear this, he said, anyone who hears these words of mine and just walks away and doesn't put them into practice, you get no credit for hearing. You get no credit for listening. In our vernacular, you get no credit for being in church. And I know we love to call our parents and say, guess where I was today? I went to church, Woohoo! God saw me there, I told my mom there, click. Jesus says, you're deceiving yourself. There is no benefit in hearing, there is no benefit in listening. There is only benefit in doing, doing is what makes all the difference. And Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand, which took some time. There was no immediate return. There was no immediate consequence or outcome. But you know the rest of the parable. And eventually there was a storm. And at the end of the storm, the man whose house was built on the rock, his home was, house was standing. The man who built his house on the sand had nothing but regret, nothing to show for it. Happiness, please don't ever forget this. Happiness is an outcome. Happiness is a result. You sow and reap your way into happiness. And here's the most fantastic thing. It's why we do this the way we do it. It's why we invite you to be here. It's why we broadcast it. It's why we love the local church. Jesus has pointed the way, but better than that, he has invited you and he's invited me to follow him. And if we were to say, Jesus, what makes a person happy? He would say, everything I just told you, follow me. So your way there. 
Isn't that amazing? So step back and review and get set up for next week. I'm gonna ask the question again, but now we have two answers. So here's the question. What makes you happy? We all know the first answer. No thing, that's right. What makes you happy? Sewing, that's right. So let's say it again, both answers, ready? What makes you happy? No thing, it's more about a who than a what. What makes you happy according to Jesus? Sewing, that's what makes you happy. Now, for those of you who have just joined a community group, we just have this enormous group link. Some of you are in group for the first time. Some of you are back in group for the first time in a long time. We would love, love, love for you to have everybody in your group listen to these messages and process those together. And you can go to happyseries.org, happyseries.org, download that PDF. The questions are there. We want to make this so easy for you because we want this to be personal for you. We believe circles are better than rows. And as good a job as I might have done explaining it today, we want you to wrestle with this content. And the best way to do that is in a circle. So don't miss that opportunity. We've made it as easy as we possibly could. Thanks so much for being here. Let me pray for you and we'll go. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for preserving this amazing teaching from Jesus. And Lord, different ones of those blessed statements landed with us different ways. Give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we heard. And please give us the courage to follow through. In Jesus name, we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week for part three of what makes you happy.